Please join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator, editor Mitch Hoffman, and tonight's guests, Brad Meltzer, Michael Corita, and David Baldacci. Hi, everyone. Welcome here to this uh, Meet the Authors panel, uh, part of Book Expo America New York Book Week. Uh, my name is Mitch Hoffman. I'm an editor at Grand Central Publishing. I'll be moderating the panel tonight. Thank you for coming out here. You're at the best panel, part of BA. Um, it's the best because, one, you do not have to go all the way to Javits, too far away. But most importantly, uh, you have here three of the finest thriller writers and storytellers working today. Uh, Michael Carita, Brad Meltzer. Oh, yeah. Please, please. Michael Carita, bring it up. Brad Meltzer and, uh, and David Baldacci. Um, now, these gentlemen are all very, very modest. So let me say a few things about uh, each of them before we get into the questions. Uh, Michael Carita is the author of eight novels. He's been nominated for just about every award you can be nominated for, including the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award for Best First Novel, he won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Best Mystery Thriller Novel of the Year. His work has been translated into 20 languages, 20 languages, and he is also a former private investigator and newspaper reporter. His new book, The Ridge, goes on sale next week. Uh, Brad Meltzer is the author of eight New York Times bestselling thrillers, most recently The Inner Circle. His first nonfiction work, Heroes for My Son, was also a New York Times bestseller. He's the author of the critically acclaimed comic books, Identity Crisis, and the Eisner Award-winning graphic novel, Justice League of America. In addition, he was the co-creator of the TV series, Jack and Bobby, and is the host of the History Channel series, Brad Meltzer's Decoded. Um, David Baldacci is the author of over 20 novels, all of them bestsellers. He's published in 45 languages, and there are over 110 million copies of his books in print. He's the co-founder, together with his wife, of the Wish You Well Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting literacy across America. Uh, his recent thriller, The Sixth Man, went on sale last month. His next novel, One Summer, goes on sale, goes on sale next month. No, Sixth Man last month, One Summer next month. He's a busy man. <laughs> Books are on the shelves. <laughs> now, uh, we're going to encourage live tweeting, uh, if you're so inclined, uh, for the folks at home. If the Wi-Fi connection holds up, we'll try to follow along on Twitter as well. In the second half of the panel, there'll be lots of time for questions. Please think of good ones, because as I said before, this will be preserved for an iTunes podcast. This could be your chance to be big on iTunes. Uh, I'll get things started with a few questions of my own. Um, I'd like to start with some basics. Now, all of you write very, very different books, uh, but all of your books are known for the deep research that you put into them. So start by telling us about the work that goes into building your stories. Uh, Michael. Um, yeah, sure. It, it varies for me, book to book. Um, the last book I had published, The Cypress House, is set in 1935. So trying to create um, that world, the Gulf Coast of Florida in the Depression, required um, a great deal more historical research than the contemporary novels I'd written. Um, you know, that, that was a different experience, a different level of research. The book that's coming out next week, The Ridge, um, is based around this fascinating place in Indiana. It truly exists, which is... Um, kind of amazing in itself. It's called the Exotic Feline Rescue Center. And there's a guy who started um, with three cats. He began to rescue terribly abused tigers, lions, cougars, um, you know, you name a variety of exotic cat. And this guy was involved in USDA confiscations. And they have no homes. Zoos do not want these animals. So 
out in the middle of nowhere in rural Indiana down this long gravel road, there are 229 of these animals. And um, when I've met him and just learned about how he devoted his life to this and all of the need both for the rescues and then for the sustaining of these cats, um, you know, that, that fascinated me. It, it struck me as something that, that cried out for a story. Um, that was a different sort of research. It was more journalistic, living with the, uh, the characters. So um, it's been a variety, you know, whether it's historical or contemporary, journalistic. Now, Brad, I think you have had some uh, presidential help in uh, the research for uh, some of your more recent books. Yeah, I, um, a couple years ago, got a, the greatest fan letter of my whole life. It came from former President George Bush Sr., the dad, um, and who said, I like your novel, The Millionaires. Will you sign a copy for me? And my thought was, you're the former president. I'll send you a free book, right? I'll send you a couple of David's books, too, while I'm at it. I mean, you know, why not? Um, and he was kind enough to offer his help with some research. And a couple of years back, I got a phone call from the Department of Homeland Security, and David as well, myself, and a couple of us got called in there. And, my, and they said, we'd like you to come in and brainstorm different ways that terrorists are going to attack the United States. And my first thought was, if they're calling me, we have bigger problems than anybody thinks, right? This is going to be a disaster. But when I was there, what I was struck by was that idea that they were calling ordinary people, just regular people like myself. And I, and I started looking through history to see where that came from. And I saw it started with a guy named George Washington, who had his own personal spy ring uh, that he used. He used to use regular people because he said no one will look twice at them. And I said to my guy in Homeland Security, I said, wouldn't it be cool if in my next book you found out that George Washington's spy ring still exists to this very day? And he said to me, what makes you think it doesn't? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, think about it. He said, it's one of George Washington's greatest success stories. Why would he ever disband it? And I said, that's what I want for my novel. So I went to former President Bush I said, could you have a spying like this? You know, could you move secret messages in the letters that each president leaves for another president? And he wrote me back and it said, the president wants you to have this. And I opened up the email and inside he had actually sent me the secret note that he left for Bill Clinton in the Oval Office desk. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, he sent me a secret code, right? I checked to see if, you know, are there Freemason codes in here? Is it Thomas Jefferson's old code? I checked to see, you know, does the third letter of every word spell out, I hate you, Bill? You know, what does this say? Um, but what I was struck by more than anything was just how personal it was, and it really helped develop the idea for the book. And The Inner Circle, the new novel, um, is about a young archivist in the National Archives who finds out that George Washington's spy ring exists to this very day, and he doesn't know who they're working for or what they're doing, but the greatest secret of the U.S. presidency is about to be revealed. And it certainly helps to be able to call on a president who, I will say, has the coolest email address of all time. You know, it's not like, you know, prezbush69 at AOL.com. He has a really cool address. Now, one of the things you just referred to in there was, I guess, the, the, the Red Cell program, which the, uh, which the government has to involve people like you to help them strategize against threats against the country. Uh, David, I think you have this in common, this, uh, you know, this experience. What was, your, what was your Red Cell Yeah, mine experience? was, um, they, they wanted me to blow up the Super Bowl. So I blew <laughs> up the Super Bowl. And I told my son later that um, they had asked me to do that. And he said, so you're the only thing standing between us and the bad guys? I said, yeah, pretty much. And he said, well can I move to Canada? <laughs> he was only seven. I told him, no, he couldn't do that. Um, a couple of books I've researched. One was True Blue. It was about the police department in D.C. I hadn't really written a lot about that in that part of D.C. It has a lot of big city crime areas, just like a lot of big cities do. I've gone on walk-alongs and ride-alongs with police officers before, but I went on some walk-alongs in high crime areas of D.C. where you get out of the cruiser and you're sneaking through alleys looking for bad guys. 
And I reminded the police officer who was with me, it was just one, I said, look, you've got Kevlar body armor and a Glock 9mm. I've got a notepad and a big pen. So let's just try to keep it chill tonight. Instead, he arrested four guys while I was with him, most of them for drugs. And the weirdest thing that had happened to me was they had one of the guys laying face down on the pavement. They had handcuffed him, read him his rights. And I'm just sort of standing there very awkwardly. They hauled the guy out to put him in the cruiser. The guy comes face to face with me and we'd like have this double take for like a couple of seconds. And then he says, I love your books. <laughs> I really didn't know what to say back to that. You know, I'm thinking, well, you got a long time to read coming up, like three to five years, depending on what you were busted on. Um, the other thing I did last March, I'm working on a book that involves a guy who used to be an Army Ranger, and now he's an Army CID investigator. I have a lot of friends in the military. So I flew down to Atlanta, and we drove down to Fort Benning with the infantry trains in March, and I wanted to go through some of the stuff these guys did. Not that I could do a tenth of what they do, but... So they took me to the parachute jump tower. They have two of them down at Fort Benning. One is 240 feet high. They actually attach a parachute to you and just push you off and let you drop to the ground. They wouldn't let me do that one, which I was eternally grateful for because I didn't think I would do it anyway. They have another parachute tower there where you go up and uh, it's four stories up and you go down on a zip line, but they simulate you coming out of a plane. It's just a little cutout door. And basically you're harnessed up and the leg harnesses are very uh, important for guys. You got to crank them as tightly as you can because when you jump, you're going to drop some. And if those harnesses move at all, they're going to hit a part of your anatomy you're not going to be happy about. Uh, they hit. So as I'm going up, I'm cranking these harnesses down until I have no blood left on my legs. So you get up the top, and there's a jump master there, and he said, first, are you afraid of heights? And I said, well, when I was on the ground looking up, I was not. But <laughs> up here looking down, yeah, I'm, I am kind of afraid of heights. And he said, the best thing to do is, he clipped the harness on, and he said, just back up to the far wall there, get a running start, and just jump out into the open air as far away from the building as you can. You're going to drop some. Make sure that your chin is tightly adhered to your chest. I said, why is that? He said, otherwise a strap will come around and strangle you. I was like, I got that, check that box, <laughs> chin to chest. And he said, you're gonna go on a zip line, you're gonna be jerked really violently to the right because it's trying to simulate you coming out of a plane at 10,000 feet and the plane's going 120 knots. Plane goes that way, paratroopers go that way. You're gonna be on a zip line at a 45 degree angle going like six, 700 feet. And near the bottom, there are other soldiers who will give you further instructions. I was like, while I'm in the air, they're going to give me further instructions? He said, yes, sir, that's right. So it took me like three or four minutes to work up the courage to jump, because you can't see any visible means of support. You can't see the zip line or anything. You're just jumping out into the open air four stories up. And there were a bunch of guys, paratroopers, and my friend at the bottom videotaping, and they had a betting pool going that I was not going to jump. It was like 20 guys said I wasn't, and maybe one guy said I was. And you could hear the guy on the tape, uh, one of the other colonels down there, who was saying... What's the, what's the guy doing up there, writing an effing book? Because I just, you know, I didn't jump immediately like they would have. So finally I jumped, I go flying down, and I realized what the problem is. At the bottom is just five foot high dirt berm. I don't know why they put it there, a stupid place to put it. And the soldiers at the bottom are screaming, lift your feet, sir, immediately, lift your feet. Those were the further instructions, by the way. <laughs> so I lifted my feet like past my head and cleared the berm, and then the guys ran after you, grab your harness before you hit something, it's really gonna hurt you. And the reason you do things like that is I can write a much more vivid book, you know, and you spend a lot of time talking to these guys. And the one thing that humbled me about Fort Benning is it's all infantry. It's pretty much all male because of the compound exclusion. These guys are 18, 19 years old. They volunteer for this. They come down there. They get 10 weeks of training, basic. They get four weeks of special training. So 14 weeks total, three and a half months. That's it. 
the day after three and a half months, they're in Afghanistan in combat without exception. So it's not like they're going to join the army so they can get a free ride going to college after spending four years stateside. These guys know they're going to be in front of the bullet after three and a half months. It was very humbling. So you do that, and Brad does it. We all do this to write a better book, to see it for yourself, to talk to these guys. You can't learn all this in books. This is research and insight that does not come from Wikipedia. You know, so you throw yourself off cliffs literally so we don't have to. We're grateful for your service. Yeah. We'll risk our lives for our readers. <laughs> Uh, Michael, I, I want to ask you, because it's one thing you, you can uh, go to ranger training and you can you, you learn how to parachute, but there are elements in your recent books where uh, I'm, I'm not certain that you can really necessarily experience you, uh, directly. Are you saying I don't see ghosts? I'm leading Is up to that. Is that your claim? You, you, know, you did you, your first few books and you started off with uh, you, wonderfully well received. You had a huge fan base for uh, you know, more traditional, classic uh, crime fiction series, the, right. the Lincoln Perry series, mm -hmm. but the last three, you know, there are more supernatural you know, elements and ghosts that have been introduced to it. And I want to bring this up because I've talked to a few people um, asking what one question would they want to ask of Michael Carita. And the one constant was they want to know where you get these ideas involving ghosts and the supernatural from. They are thrilled, but they're a little concerned about you. So maybe you can... No reason to me. It's just <laughs> prescription drug abuse. I mean, I'll be fine. Um, yeah, I'd written five traditional crime novels to start out. Uh, I was a private investigator for a number of years, so I was essentially getting paid to research at that point. Um, and the change to the supernatural was really, it was driven, So Cold the River was the first time I'd tried that sort of thing. And it was really driven by the history of the place. Um, West Baden Springs, Indiana, it, from 1900 to 1929 when the market crashed, this was a worldwide destination. It's where FDR announced that he was going to run for the presidency. It's where Al Capone was married. Um, it was a place for the elite from all around the world. And the reason they came to this place was based on, uh, beyond gambling and vice, but it was originally based on the idea that there were mineral springs that were truly healing. It had a mythic reputation. And I was trying to find a way to work that folklore in and it just seemed to not fit a traditional crime novel. It seemed to cry out ghost story. I wanted to bridge eras, and I wanted to deal with that folklore. So that was my first taste of it. Um, it was supposed to be a novella. It ended up being 500 pages long, so it's obviously novella. My, my novella writing skills are uh, <laughs> they're subject to question. But um, it was really just a, creatively I needed a spark and change. And I think um, you can see it in, in David and Brad's work. I mean, there's definitely an ebb and flow of different... You know, different topics, different um, approaches, and I think creatively, that's the way you keep it fresh. You need to keep challenging yourself to do different things. Um, for me, that was adding, you know, elements of the paranormal and supernatural. Yeah. And all three of you have actually ventured, you know, sometimes pretty far outside of the standard thriller vein. Uh, you, what drives you? What drives you to do that? I mean, you, you, you've been very successful. You've been bestsellers. Um, you. Is there a concern about bringing your audience that you already have with you to these other books? Do you find that you have different readers for these books? I mean, what, uh, what, 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 what are you thinking about when you write non-thrillers or when you do, do something in a different gear? Um, you know, for me, I just have to do what I love. That's it. Um, you know, when I started doing comic books, there were people who were like, why are you doing comic books? I know comic books are really cool and everyone says, oh, they're hip now and that's great. But when we started doing comic books, it was, there was no one doing it. It was Kevin Smith was doing them, the director. And then they asked me to do it because they were like, we need people from outside comics to come in. And 
Um, and I just did it because I'm a big nerd. I love them. Um, <laughs> they don't pay good. You know, it's not, you don't get to own anything, but I love them. And I felt like creatively for me, um, I think it's about, you know, when you ever go away from your house for a little bit, everything that looks staid and boring suddenly looks new again. You kind of come back and you're like, oh, you know what? I, I didn't see that tree that way. And everything looks better. And that's how it is. I, I actually leave the novels so that I can come back and see the grass greener on my own side. And the same thing with Heroes for My Son. Um, listen, I had a son. And when you have that child, you know, whether maybe you have it hopefully before, but you realize how small you are in the world and how much bigger you, this new thing is. And I just said, I, I want to do something for him. When, my, when I was born, the day I was born, my dad went and bought a bottle of champagne. And he said, I'm going to open this at my son's wedding. And I remember when he lost his job and he had basically $1,200 to his name, you know, packed up the car, we moved to Florida. And what you put in your moving van is your stuff, right? You put your clothes, you put your stuff in there. What you keep in your car with when you move, the stuff you don't let the movers touch, that's your life. And I remember when we moved to Florida, the, and I'll never forget this, in the back seat behind the, the headrest where my sister and I were sitting were two bottles of champagne that just rolled back and forth in the Florida sun. And my parents knew nothing about taking care of champagne, right? But, they, but that was their life, it was us. And I didn't buy a bottle of champagne. That's just not how I communicate. I said, I'm going to write him a book. And it, it was nothing more than just it's what I loved at that moment and I wanted to do is leave that legacy for him. So, you know, I guess I, I, I'd be a liar if I said I didn't care if the audience came or not because we all care if the audience comes. But sometimes you do have to leap off the trapeze and, and just hope someone catches you. And I think that creatively for me, it's the best thing I can do to come back to the novels and feel refreshed. Yeah, and David, you have a very different novel coming up uh, next month, one, one summer. Yeah, I, I've always considered myself just a writer, not any particular kind of writer. It's easy to label all of us as mystery or thriller or whatever, but we just write. We take words and we tell stories with them, and that's really what we do. So that can be applied to lots of different themes, lots of different stories, lots of different genres. A writer a long time ago gave me a great piece of advice. He said, the day you think you know as a writer what you're doing is the day you lose your edge completely and you're no longer going to be a good writer because you start asking yourself the question, instead of saying, how can I do it differently next time, you ask yourself, how did I do it last time? Try to get the book out, just hack it out. And that's when you sort of lost it. You lost the creative edge. So for me, it's like writing my first novel over and over again with that same wonder, that same fear. I, I'm scared with every project. I can't bring the magic again. I'm going to fall on my face. I have no idea what I'm doing. But that's actually a good thing because that gives you an edge over the people who think they know what they're doing. And really, they just turn out the same book over and over again. They just change the names, a little bit of the plot. A little. And that gets very boring. If, it, if it's boring for me to write it, it'll be boring, certainly, for you to read it. Now, I think writers just need to branch out. I, I completely agree with Brad. You know, you got to go where the love takes you. You got to go where the interest and passion lies. And you could just be walking down the street and have an idea for a book. It may not be a thriller, but you need to write it because you can't not write it. It's, so, it's a part of your life. And this book, One Summer, that comes out next month, the only reason I wrote it, total fluke, nobody knew I was going to write it, publisher, agent, wife, no one, is because my son had his confirmation last December. My wife sent me to church early to save seats because we had friends and family flying in. I don't know about the guys in here in this room, but I pretty much do everything my wife tells me to do because she's a lot smarter than I am. So I've always, that's always worked well for me. But I'm sitting in church for an hour with nothing to do, and I have an idea for a book. It hit me so sort of violently that I spent the next three months obsessed with writing it, and I wrote it. It wasn't a thriller. I didn't really care what it, what it was. I just knew I had to write the story, and that's what writers do. We create stuff. We're content providers, and we have to go sort of where the muse takes us and the interest takes us. I don't necessarily write about things, I'm in, about things I know a lot about, the old adage, write what you know. I write about things that I'm interested in finding out about. 
and I find that a lot better. Well, shift gears a second. Uh, Brad, uh, this question is, is, is for you. Um, you are the host of a, uh, I think it's correct to call it, a basic cable hit. Uh, <laughs> Brad Meltzer's Decoded, which is on the History Channel. Which is the best title of all time, right? Brad Meltzer's Decoded. I said to my wife, honey, what are we having for Brad Meltzer's dinner tonight? Because yesterday we had Brad Meltzer's chicken, and tonight I'd like to have Brad Meltzer's pasta. And she was like, you can go sleep on Brad Meltzer's couch. <laughs> it is a good title, though. Well, it's answering the first question. Who thought of that title? <laughs> who do you think thought of that title? <laughs> even my Brad agent, Meltzer's idea? That's exactly right. Even, my, even Brad Meltzer's agent isn't that uh, narcissistic. Uh, what I do wonder about is, you know, not all authors uh, you know, are able to cross over you know, to uh, host a TV show in this way. Uh, was there any special basic cable training involved to be able to, uh, to do you know, the show? David may have jumped off a 240-foot tower, but I went through basic cable training. Um, no, they don't have anything. They it's, it's cable, right? They let anything go. You've seen TV. Um, the truth is, I wasn't supposed to be in the show. They were really smart. They're like, why should we put like the pasty bald guy in the show? Like, That's not going to get any viewers. And I was supposed to be in two minutes in the beginning and then two minutes at the end. And um, it was just fantastic because it was like Seinfeld, really. We, um, you, know, you know when George goes to work and, and he says it's going to be the opposite day, he's going to do the opposite of everything he does? So usually, like when it comes to Hollywood, we all chase, we run, or at least I usually chase and run and trying to get whatever. And this time I was like, you know what, I'm just going to let it be. And they came back from the first round of footage, and they said, we hate this, we hate this, we hate this, but you know what we need? We need more Brad. And my wife's like, that's what they said, more Brad? That's the, these are the stupidest people you've ever met. And I was like, and then the next round came, like, we hate this, we hate this, but we need more Brad. And I was like, this is working for me. I'm loving this. Um, so the truth was, it was a complete fluke. And I think the only reason it happened, I love making fun of it because it, it, you have to make fun of it. Um, but the truth is, is it was a collaborative process and history was willing to realize that I'm just so much of a history nerd that I love this stuff. And the more they saw me expressing my love of these stories, the more infectious they got into it. And again, I think, it, you know, again, we are, we are all storytellers. A good story is a good story. And whether it's on cable, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, a good story is a good story. And, and so what you see there is nothing more than the same thing I'd say to you if I met you on the street, which is my love of these nerdy things. <laughs> well, uh while you know, Michael and David, you know, since you guys did not have the uh, the cable show, you've been busy as well. Um, I think you, Michael, you've had uh, three books published in the last uh, uh, twelve month period. Yeah, with three the twelve months, up. yeah. You know, and uh, David, I think you have three books coming out in two thousand eleven as well. Uh, this uh, seems to me like a, a, a very uh, grueling writing schedule that you all have to be on. Uh, why would be my question? You know, what what pushes you to do that? How are, and how are you able to do that? I mean, for me, I think it's far more grueling on the good people of uh, Little Brown. They have to crunch the production schedules a lot more um, than when you're doing a book a year. Writing schedule-wise, I do a minimum of 1,500 words every day, um, but I do that because I love it, I just, I, and I need to. I can't outline to save my life. I need to be living in the story um, for a long time to figure out what should be there. Uh, I'm one of those people who believes that there's, it's almost like sorting facts and journalism to get to the right story. I've got to sort out a lot of false leads and bad threads in my fiction to get to the right story. And so that requires a lot of rewrites and a lot of messy drafts, so I just need to be working consistently. Um, but it, it never feels like work to me. I mean, this is not a job. Um, there are elements of business to it, but it doesn't feel like a job to me. This is, you know, it's a privilege. Um, so I, I write every day because that's what I like to do. It's, it hasn't been tough. Um, Little Brown's been great about turning things around quickly. I think that's where the actual struggle is. You know, I do have to say that <clears throat> I did a cable show last year. It was a conspiracy theorist. 
And I was on there to say that I didn't believe that the U.S. government actually had caused 9-11 and it imploded the Twin Towers and all the other buildings. And um, the next morning on my email, I had like 100 emails from people and each one of them pretty much basically said, you, sir, are an ignorant moron. If you Welcome don't believe in this moron spelled correctly. <laughs> well, I thought it was a little redundant too, but there you go. So, uh, <laughs> trust me, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I have your email now. <laughs> I get all those. I my writing schedule. I don't write every day. I tend to write in big bursts at a time when I think I've got it all crystallized in my head. Um, I don't outline a lot. I know some writers whose outlines are longer than their novels, and that works for them, and that's great. I've always felt like if I wrote from an outline. It would read like I wrote from an outline, sort too neatly thought out. And uh, I also need to sort of live in the moment, live in the, in the novel. It's, it's easier to sort of outline things, but to sit there and actually have the creative spark and actually write a scene, develop a character, do some action, have some narrative, have some dialogue, you actually have to sort of create it in that moment. And it doesn't really, for me, it doesn't distill well just from an outline. Um, so I write in big bursts. I'm very productive during those time periods. And some days I'll go away and won't write for a week or two weeks. But I'm always thinking about it. So when I come back, I can be very productive. And I know I have my deadlines to hit, but I try not to think about that too much because I think it might be sort of paralyzing if you thought too much about how all the people depending on you getting this book in on time. You just have to let the story flow. You have to think it through. You have to be disciplined. But at the same time, every writer is different. Some writers like to have that daily word output. That works great for them. Some writers don't want to stare at the screen until something comes. Some writers write like me in sort of big bursts at certain times, and they go away from it, and then they come back. So. Everyone's different, but uh, that works well for me and wouldn't work well for other people. It's every writer has to find their own sort of way to do it. Shift gears in, shifting gears slightly. Um, here we are talking at the Apple Store. Uh, I think odds are uh, a couple years ago we would not have had a book event here. Um, with the emergence of the iPad, of the tablets, and e-readers, uh, this really fanned readers' interests uh, in iBooks. And by some measures, e-books already account for over 20% of the, of the U.S. book market. 2010, it was less, it was less than 10%. So what I'm curious about is, um, how has this change and this really explosion in e-books changed what all of you do as writers? Has it changed anything in terms of how you think about the way you write and the way you tell your stories? Has it changed at all how you interact with your fans and readers, what you hear from your fans? Um, for me, it hasn't changed the process at all. I mean, I don't think it should infiltrate the way you approach a story. Um, and, you know, Brad was talking about his love of comic books, uh, but it ultimately comes down to a love of story and story in many forms. I think that's probably what we all, um, you know, are worried about every day. That shouldn't change because of the device and the medium. Um, obviously, it's, it's a publishing concern. It's a business concern. But in terms of approach to the story, you know, it hasn't bled into my process um, in the least. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think interacting with fans is a different question. I think, um, you know, we are now all of our own publishers. You know, we are, and I mean, not authors up here, everybody, everyone broadcasts. You can broadcast every day from your house. Um, and I think it creates a great access. Um, I think for some people it creates this great burden. You gotta get on Twitter. You gotta be on Facebook. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta. But that's that's the nature of the game, right? There's always a you gotta. It just the technology has just changed to be a more tech-heavy gotta. Um, and I think there's good of that and there's bad of that. I think there's a lot of uh, second guessing that you do when you start thinking of your audience too much. I think David hit it right on the head. When you start, you know, thinking of that stuff, then you're doing what you expect people want, and that can really mess you up. I think you just have to find your balance. But Michael said it right. I mean. 
it should I mean I can't imagine how it affects any story unless it's your page layout if you have you know a graphic <laughs> I think the uh, I, I would agree with both of them that it doesn't change the story it does change how you interact um, you can do more things with an ebook obviously with an iPad you can do enhanced ebooks now where you can add video and audio and deleted scenes and chapters so and you can show the, the readers, you know, sort of how the book was put together. Show them some edited manuscript pages to show your creative process. You couldn't do that with a regular book. So you should embrace that technology that allows you to do that. You can have a writer's cut ebook, like a director's cut DVD, which is something new for the, for the readers. It's a new dimension, a new perspective. So I think that's always good. But you have to go with the, where the readers are. I don't really care how you read. All I care about is that you do read. So you can read on an ebook, you can read on a book. Uh, paperback on the beach, it really doesn't matter to me. I think that people have to keep in mind though that what's really important about all this is the content, not the delivery system. I know I should be saying this in the Apple Store, but anyway, the content <laughs> really is key. And I think we all realize that so long as we keep that perspective sort of clear, then everything else will be fine. But storytelling stays the same, but we can reach readers in new and innovative ways. And I think that's always positive, just to get new people in. Some, I know that Apple sold like 9 million iPads last December. And probably a lot of those people had never downloaded a book onto an electronic device before, maybe even never read a book before. But now that it's so easy to do, I, I had to believe that the pie got a little bit bigger because people were downloading stuff and reading for the first time. And wow, they realized this is kind of fun. You know, I like this. I might try it again. And the immediacy of it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll see somebody on an interview, um, catch an author interview, and, and immediately be able to download a book as opposed to thinking, okay, I've got to write that title down, try and hold on to it, and go to the store. I think that is, you know, one huge advantage, too. Yeah, I will say, I do like the, we did an advanced ebook for Inner Circle. David uh, reminded me. And we actually put in there um, research notes. You know, the, the, the very, I do a very, very rough outline, but I put it in there because I was like, people always want to know how it is. And, you know, it's like however many chapters. You can, you can physically, I literally photocopied my notebook and my research book. And I, I love that. I mean, again, for a nerd like me to be able to see that, I love listening to good commentary. I hate bad commentary. I hate commentary when you're like, you know, you ever watch the commentary where they're like, that's me. And I'm walking, and there I am walking. I'm like, I can see, don't, don't narrate. Tell me what you did. Tell me where the core of the story is. Where are you as a, as a, a creator, as an author, as a thinker? Um, and so I actually try for the first time to do that. And, and I thought that was a great part. I mean, when you, you know, we, we threw so much stuff. And my, my wife is like, why are you putting so much time to this? I'm like, because it's cool, and you can. And it's, I think, that, to me, that's what I would want to see as a reader. Well, I think we wanted to open this up to uh, questions. Anyone have a microphone? So please raise your hand. We'll come to you. Anyone? This is your moment. Here you go. Right over here, second row. Uh, hi. Um, would you have any advices to aspiring authors? The question was uh, advice to aspiring writers. Um, speaking personally, I'd say don't worry about the market too much. Um, worry about the story. When you start trying to gauge what the market's interested in and what's hot right now, um, first of all, you're probably already going to be about a year or two behind. And secondly, you're selling your creative soul like right out of the gate. Um, I think everyone's best book probably comes from the, uh, you know, the story that they were just compelled to write. They were driven to write. Um, David was talking about it with this book um, that he's, he's got coming out this summer. You know, Brad with the book for his son. These are things that they wouldn't have planned necessarily and a publisher wouldn't have planned for them as the next step in their you know, marketing journey. But they were books that they were compelled to write from within artistically. So um, you know, to me, that's really the, the best advice. That and you know, the obvious read, read, and read. 
Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I got 24 rejection letters on my first book. To be clear, there were only 20 publishers at the time, and I got 24 <laughs> rejection letters. That I means some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. Um, but I, I, it really is the best lesson. I don't look back on it and say, well, I was right and they were wrong and ha on them. That's a pig-headed way to look at it. But I do look back and I do think whatever it is you choose to do, whether you are a writer, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an editor, what, you know, whatever it is, you work in the store here, whatever it is you choose to do, don't let anyone tell you no. I think that is just it. You just cannot take that rejection and, and you have to keep going forward. The other one um, actually was given to me by David when I first met him years ago. And I still use it. I tell it all the time to people. And I think it's for people who are writing for a long time. He said, it's okay to admit that it's hard. And he threw that out to me. Um, I've known David a long time and, and was really the first mentor I had in this business. And he told me that. And I still, to this day, because every day I sit down, I'm still terrified I can't do it. I still worry that it's all just a disaster and everything I've put down is awful. And I still think of that. And to remind myself that it's okay. You know, if it was hard, everyone would do it. Uh, that's, it's, it's spot on. I mean, it, you know, it's spot on because it's your advice. It's, that's right. Well said. That was genius, Meltzer. <laughs> I know. Say it again, Brad. I want to hear it again. I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, why do you want to be a writer? That's, that's sort of what I did because it'll tell a lot about whether you're going to be successful or not. If the answer is, I love to tell stories, I love to play with words, I love to read books, I get enthralled by losing myself in someone else's imagination, and I'm willing to spend years of my life in total obscurity with no chance ever that I'm going to have any success whatsoever, then you're probably meant to be a writer. And if the answer is, I hate my day job and I want to get rich really fast, that's not a good answer. But, and I don't say that too facetiously, because a lot of people feel that way. It's like, you know, I can write a book, because there's a lot of them out there, and it can't be that hard. You, don't, you can admit it is very hard to do. And most of us up here are overnight successes. The only problem is it took like thousands of nights for us to get there. We've all written pages no one will ever see other than maybe our wife or our mother, and that's it. Uh, but that's the process you have to go through. And Brad is also right about the passion part. You're going to get rejected a lot. I don't care how good you are or how long you've been writing. Passion strikes very rarely in life, whether it be writing or something else. Unfortunately, most people are not passionate about what they do for a living. They get their passion from other things, their family, their friends, or whatever. Not from their work. Writers are lucky to be able to get the passion from their work. So the last thing you should do, and the only time you ever lose if you're rejected, is if you allow a stranger through a rejection to rob you from your passion about something. And the other thing you have to remember is that passion almost never comes along twice in a lifetime. Almost never. It's like getting hit by lightning twice. It's not going to happen. So if you allow a stranger to rip that out of you, it's not going to come back a second time. But if the answer is you love to tell stories, love words, love to read, and you don't mind sitting down there just losing yourself in your own imagination for years at a time, and you're following something you love to do, those rejections will hit you, but they'll bounce off. They'll sting for a little while, but they'll bounce off. If you're in it for the wrong reason, the first rejection is going to hit you. It's going to be a mortal wound. You're never going to get up again. That's the best advice I can tell to an aspiring writer. Right here, front. I think it's fair to say that crime writing has never been more popular than it is now, both sides of the Atlantic. Do you guys have a feeling of why that is? Why is crime writing so popular? There's a lot of it. I mean, crime. <clears throat> There's a lot of crime. It's the, it's the boogeyman. All kids love to be scared. You know, They don't want to look under the bed, but they want to look under the bed. They don't want to look in the closet, but they want to look in the closet because everybody wants to be safely scared. Just because you grow up doesn't mean you lose that. Adults love to be safely scared. You know, they want to get into the heads of the serial killers who've killed dozens of people. 
They just don't want to meet them on the street. They don't want to have lunch with them, but they want to see them through the pages of a book or on the screen from a safe distance. And people are naturally gravitate to things that seem foreign to them. They don't know a whole lot about. Most of us are normal. I would assume there's probably not a serial killer down here tonight. Hopefully not. No one but, raise your hand for that, right. please. <clears throat> right. I won't include, <laughs> Actually, the, I won't include the people on the stage. <laughs> but um, we're naturally curious about that because it is so odd and strange to us. We want to know, how can a human being, I'm a human being, I've got these inhibitors that allow me not to do that. They don't. That's fascinating to me. And also people, I think, just naturally love puzzles and mysteries. And mysteries are puzzles. You're, it's a competition between the reader and the writer. You want to get to the solution before the, the writer wants you to get to the solution. You want to figure it out so you can go on Amazon.com and say, ah, I figured it out in the last three pages and therefore found it predictable. One star only you get. So it's kind of a competition and people are naturally competitive. People are naturally fascinated by people who are not like us. Yeah, I also think that, um, of course I agree, and, but I, I also think that, uh, it's funny, I don't even come at it from the side of the crime part, I come at it from the hero side. Uh, I think that the reason these stories and even superhero stories and movies and, and even the vampire things that are out is I, I actually think as a culture um, we're really scared right now. I really do. I think as a culture we're kind of terrified. There's so much bad news. There's so many horrible things. Um, and I think w when you look historically at, any, at times of crisis, that's when the most stories with heroes come about. I mean, there's a reason Superman launched right before World War II. There's a reason why right when 9-11 happened, the biggest movie that broke through the public consciousness was Spider-Man. We were a country looking for people to save us. And I think if you look at even the last election, when you look at who we nominated, um, you know, in McCain and in Obama, one was the great, uh, you know, hope to half of America, and the other one had fought the bad guys with his bare hands. We weren't looking for politicians. We were looking for someone to save us. And I think that times of crisis and times of turmoil bring out uh, people who, you know, can beat the serial killer, can beat the vampire, can beat the, the bad guy. Um, and, and I do think that's just where we are as a culture right now. I think it's a, it's a really scary time, and scary times bring out scary stories. So as thriller writers, we want the bad times to continue for as long as possible. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I would agree with, uh, with both of you. Um, Stephen King had a great line. I think this is back in the, back in the 80s. Um, but he was talking about looking at what he did as being similar to the, uh, the culture of the Welsh um, sin eaters, which is when someone was dying, th these people would come to the home and consume these enormous meals, but the idea was that they were also consuming the sins of the dying individual and that this would al allow them to pass on um, safely into the, next, into the next realm. And he said, right on uh, Brad's point, that he thought horror fiction, particularly supernatural horror, was more popular in, term in times of um, great crisis, when there were real threats that were pervasive and you just couldn't get away from them. And he viewed his novels as being sort of like the, the role of the Sin Eater. And that if he's writing about these terrible things, he's sort of taking it on so you can read about it and enjoy it and feel like it's, it's been held at bay for you by someone else. Um, but I think that there's definitely a spike in both the desire to see the heroic journey and um, also I think the desire for supernatural fiction. Um, if you look at the vampire craze and the zombie craze, there's no accident, there's no coincidence that this is happening, you know, post 9-11 in a time when, you know, riding on the subway terrifies people. All of a sudden, a vampire or a zombie or a ghost seems maybe a little bit refreshing um, because you can lose yourself in suspense with that, but you don't have to worry about it when you get on the subway. So I think that is a, a pretty good point, Brad Main. 
it becomes a safe way for your readers to process and think about the things that yeah, the experience that, of that they're afraid of that maybe they don't even realize what they're afraid of. A fear of. and suspense, but without the, the real horror, sure. Any other questions? Right here in the second row. Hi. Um, can you tell us um, maybe a, a book or two that inspired you to become a writer or something that um, made you want to tell stories? Um, going a little more recent, I mean, I could go back to when things were read when I was a kid, but uh, Dennis Lehane, um, Gone Baby Gone was a, a huge influence. Uh, Stephen King's book on writing was a tremendous influence. And then um, of late, I think Daniel Ladrell, if there's one writer who inspires me um, on a daily basis, it's, it's, it's that guy. Um, his ability to handle prose, to build character, and they're, they're real people. Um, you know, his Winner's Bone, Reed Dolly, is. That's a hero's journey, but it's a very different sort of hero than someone who's trying to uh, you know, disarm the ticking bomb on a plane. Um, this is someone trying to save you know, her family's land by finding her father, the meth-dealing father's body. Um, I, just, I think that guy's an extraordinary writer because of the depth of humanity. Uh, Stuart Onan, I'd also put in that category. I think he's about as good as anybody alive right now. Um, for me, I think uh, I still remember. I know you know everyone when you, when you ask about great you know what books inspire you. Everyone we're supposed to give you the smart answer that makes it sound smart and cool and edgy. And um, and I'm I just have to say I'm going to be more honest you know in terms of uh, for myself at least. And I love all those people. He said I think you know they they're amazing writers. But I from from the start for me it was Agatha Christie. I just remember reading an Agatha Christie book. And there was a body. It was called Murder at the Vicarage. And to this day, I read it when I was like 10 years old. To this day, I don't know what a vicarage is. Don't tell me. I don't want to ruin it. I don't care. But I just remember opening that book, and there was a body. And there was a dead body on a page, and no one knew who did that. And I remember as a 10-year-old, that about blew my head off my shoulders. I mean, I just was like, how? How could they be dead? Who could have killed it? I mean, it was just like the sucker bed of the year. But that, that had an impact on me. I mean, no question about it. Um, I think in, as I got older, I think the British writers like Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman were as much of an influence on what I write as anyone out there. And, and the same thing with uh, Albert Brooks or Woody Allen and just finding that you can use humor as this amazing way to teach humanity. Uh, and I think intelligence always comes out. I mean, humor always comes out of a, a place of intelligence. And I, and I know it's a weird mishmash of, of influences, but, but those are the honest ones. Yeah, <clears throat> I started reading the British mysteries when I was a kid too. They were readily accessible. Uh, Agatha Christie obviously was everywhere. Conan Doyle, I, I would read Conan Doyle. I read the first Sherlock Holmes mysteries and the Reader's Digest condensed versions. And they were such short stories, I think I got the whole story anyway. But uh, just the conundrums, you know, the how, the how, how, who did it? And the clues and the red herrings, it was good training. Didn't know it was good training back then, but when I was in college, my favorite writer was John Irving. And John Irving did something that's really difficult to do. The only other writer I could compare to him, at least on the, on, in America, would be Mark Twain where John Irving and Mark Twain both wrote these long yarns involving multiple generations, taking on substantive issues, and did it with great humor. And if you've ever attempted that, it's really, really hard to do. You know, you take a book like Cider House Rules that has humor about a book that really deals with abortion. That's difficult to do, and to be able to carry that off. So when I was in high school, I was trying to write like John Irving. Then I read Lake Wobegon Days, I was trying to write like Garrison Keillor. And I read Patricia Highsmith, and I was trying to write like her. And of course, at the end of the day, I couldn't write like any of them. I just had to find my own voice. But the important thing is to read, particularly as a young... I don't know any writers, really, who have had sustainable careers that weren't readers 
from a young age, because that's really how you get hooked. It's not like you just jump down and start writing stuff on a piece of paper. Something has to draw you into that world of writing, and nine times out of 10, or maybe 10 times out of 10, it's other books by other writers. And you always sort of try to pick who your favorite is. You try to say, you know, I love the storyteller. I'm going to write like this guy. And that's a very sort of a novice approach to take. There's nothing wrong with it. But as your time goes by, you have to realize, I need to write like me, not like someone else. And you can learn from other great writers. And I would say, don't go and buy a self-help book. You know, go to the library and check out the masters for free. The people have actually done it time and again and turn out these wonderful stories. It's a great way to spend your life. I always tell people that readers are much more interesting people than people who don't read. They know a lot more. Their diversity of subject matter is very intense. They're a lot more fun at parties. I can tell readers at parties right away. If you, re if you read a lot, I can tell just from your conversation whether you read a lot or not. And I like to, when I go to, you know, out to Hollywood and go on film sets or TV sets, it's nice to go and look at the stars and shake their hand and say, gee, I really love your work. I like to hang out with the writers. Those are the people who create all the stuff. They write all the dialogue, they write the plots, they write the narrative, they write all the situations that are enthrall us every week or every movie you go and see. Those are the really cool dudes. And those are the ones I like to hang out with. And that tells you a lot about writing in general. And we have time for two more questions. Here in the back. Hello. Yeah. Uh, just a minute ago, was, uh, Brad Meltzer, you said uh, humor comes out of a place of intelligence. Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit more? Well, I just, you know, the question is, is uh, when I said that I think that um, that intelligence kind of breeds humor, or that humor does come out of a place of intelligence. I just have never really found a, a funny, stupid person. I mean, I just, I really don't, because you know what, that be, it, it comes out of something that's just not. It, to me, humor is is criticism um, in a strange way. And when I think you, when I think of a great comedian, um, they have something to say. They're not just trying to make you laugh. And listen, uh, there is no one funnier in my household to my nine-year-old than the Three Stooges. Nobody is funnier. And I can't possibly say that you know they're they're dealing with real-world problems when uh, Curly fights the oyster in the soup, but which is a great uh, Three Stooges if you've ever seen it. It's really one of the classic. best ones. It it's really classic. is. Put in Curly and oyster and just you'll thank me. You owe me a thank you. Um, but the truth is, you will. Uh, I just I do think that the people that I like best um, are the people that have that wink and the nod in their writing, um, and I think that that really comes from an intelligent place. It's not that it makes it a little more meta, not that it makes it a little more edgy or cool, but I just think it comes from true intelligence, and I think that's where great criticism comes from. Um, I think if you look at anything that makes us laugh, it's always a critique of something that's also making us cry. Hi, um, I'm a big John Grissom fan, and I just like John Grissom. Oh, I heard of him. <laughs> Okay. We won't get into that. But I just would like to know, um, are you looking forward to having your books change or, you know, have a screenwriter to rewrite them and put it on film? Because I find that when John Grissom's books were written for film, they were horrible. I do not like any of his books on film. I have practically all his books. So I would like to know, what are your feelings about having your books changed and put into film? Um, you know, it hasn't happened for me yet. I've got, you know, a few um, options underway, so we'll see. Hopefully it works out well. I think the, um, the idea, um, what's the great line? It's um, the guy, a writer who sells his book to Hollywood and then complains about what Hollywood did with it. It's like a guy who leaves the whorehouse complaining that he didn't feel loved. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. You make the decision to sell your rights, um, and you know it's going to be changed and it's altered and it's a different form. Um, I can't speak to whether his his novels have 
changed or evolved or whether I don't think we can try and speak for what's in his mind if he's looking toward the screen. Um, so I, I won't attempt to, uh, to answer for Mr. Grisham. My five-year-old is in the front row, so I'd like to personally thank you for that metaphor. Yes, that no was, problem. Very, very nice Happy to bring that to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, again, of course, you know, you don't want to sell your, your, you know, your stuff. Don't sell your stuff. Um, I will tell you that very early on in my career, I got to speak to John Grisham, uh, and he said to me, and it was, I, again, fantastic advice I got from the start, and he was, with the advice that someone gave him, uh, which was, it, no matter what happens... And no matter what they do to your stuff, no matter how much they change the ending, absolute power, you know, I mean, and make it worse than what was great on that page. Um, and I know Dave will be too courteous to say it, but I'll say it for him. Um, and, and no matter how much they wreck your stuff, your book still goes on your shelf and it's yours forever. And that's it. And I just was like, awesome. Love it. That's great. That's what it should be. You don't want to sell it. Don't sell it. But if you sell it, don't bitch. There's nothing worse than a really wealthy person bitching at the premiere of their own movie. <laughs> I hate that person. <clears throat> I, yeah, I can't believe John thinks about that a lot. You know, he's had a lot of books turned into movies, and it, it's the math, just do the math. A screenplay is 120 pages long. Okay, that's pretty much it. If it's a romantic comedy, you got 95 pages to hit it. Not even a woman will watch it past 95 minutes. So every page is like a minute of film. You can write a, a screenplay that is like four hours long, you have to have two elements. One, you have to have a very young, attractive couple falling in love. And secondly, you have to have a really large ship sinking for a really long time. If you have both those elements, people will sit their butts in the theater like 10 times to watch it happen. But other than that, <clears throat> you do just kind of have to let it go. As Brad said, it was great advice from John. You will always have the book. We don't write movies up here. We write books that may or may not be turned into movies. But also, to give, you have to give a little bit of credit on the film side as well. They're creative people. They're collaborative people. They know they have a job to do. When they adapted Absolute Power for film, Bill Goldman was assigned to do it. Guy's a legendary screenwriter. But Hollywood is a director's town. And when Clint Eastwood signed on to star and direct, his marching orders were, I want to I film this slice of the book, and I don't want this thing that happened to me in the book to happen to me on film, because I don't die in movies, at least not until uh, Gran Torino he didn't anyway. By the way, he died spectacularly in that movie. <laughs> he was shot like 700,000 times. It was amazing. Um, but you have to realize that the director calls the shots and they want to film a certain part of the movie and they want certain things to happen in it and the book gets changed. Okay, big deal, I don't really care. You got made into a movie, you sold a lot more books, people know your name, they like, go like your books, and as Brad said, you still have your book. That's kind of a win-win for me. The only time you lose is if you worry about that crap. You know, just move on. If the worst thing that happens to me is that Clint Eastwood makes a movie out of one of my books, I'm like been blessed straight from the Pope, you know? So life's just too short. I think that's uh, all the time we have here. So I want to say, in conclusion, thank you all for coming out here and being with us. And, and yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank help you. me thank you, Mitch. Help, help me thank uh, David Baldacci, Brad Melcher, and Michael Carrillo for a fantastic. Thanks, panel. Mitch. <laughs>